This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, May 9th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Columnist George Will doesn't mince words. His words for President Trump are particularly sharp. At the Cato Institute's 40th anniversary celebration, I spoke with Will about his thoughts on the president and the presidency itself. You had some uh, particularly sharp words for uh, President Trump this week. Uh, What inspired that? Uh, The accumulated cascade, Niagara, Vesuvius, call it what you will, of statements that he's made that are not just not true, but demonstrate a kind of alarming, A, ignorance of the American past, and B, inability to think sequentially. So (laughs) what... I guess, what advice do you have to Americans who are observing this who uh, think like you do? I think uh, Americans ought to be very sober, realistic, and uh, calm but frightened, if that doesn't sound like a contradiction. They should understand that they have a president who, as I've said before and will now say again for you, uh, the problem with him isn't that he doesn't know this or that, who's the prime minister of Bangladesh is. He can be told that. The problem isn't that he doesn't know that he doesn't know this or that. The problem is that it's not clear that he knows what it is to know something, what it means to have an opinion and a judgment based on adequate evidence uh, sustained by good reasoning, that he seems to be susceptible to trotting off in all directions on the basis of whatever was whispered in his ear by the last person to whisper. Uh, So there's a kind of inherent, probably incurable, instability in the presidency right now and will be for at least three and a half more years. What has Congress's role been in uh, enabling this thus far? I don't think Congress has enabled it. I think, in fact, one of, the, one of the good things that's going to happen, I think, as a result of the Trump presidency is a revival of Congress as an institution with, as Madison wanted it to have, a kind of institutional jealousy and rivalry with the executive branch. Uh, In his frustration, and he's easily frustrated, Mr. Trump recently said, we need a shutdown in the government this fall, and we need to change the Senate rules to get rid of the filibuster. Instantly, we had a bipartisan moment in Washington where Republicans and Democrats alike in the Senate said, not happening. Uh, Unlimited debate is part of the Senate tradition, and we're keeping it. So, That's just one instance, but an an encouraging instance. Uh, The very fact that the president uh, really did outsource to the legislative branch the writing of legislation, that sounds sort of obvious, but in recent years it hasn't been obvious. In recent years, we've treated the presidency as the chief legislator. Uh, And Congress seems to be, again, asserting itself, uh, not just against the executive branch, but the Senate famously against the House and the House against the Senate. Again, this kind of rivalry is what Madison had in mind, and it's part of the ongoing uh, remedial education of Mr. Trump to explain to him that it's supposed to be hard to make the American government work. When the framers went to Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, they did not go to frame an efficient government. The idea would have horrified them. They wanted a government safe, that is, safe enough, strong enough to secure our natural rights, but not strong enough to threaten them. Uh, 
to which end they filled the government with blocking mechanisms. Three branches of government, two branches of the legislative branch, supermajorities, veto, veto, overrides, judicial review, all kinds of ways to slow the beast down. On the obviously true premise, in my judgment, that about 95 percent of what the government does, it either shouldn't do or has no competence of doing or has no constitutional warrant for doing. That being so, about 95 percent of good governance consists of stopping things. And happily, our Madisonian institutions are really good at that. There has been this decades long. Um, you talk about jealousy that, the, that uh, Congress should be asserting. They haven't been very good at that for the last 70, 80 years. They haven't been trying. In fact, they've rather relished delegating powers they have no right to delegate, essentially legislative powers to the administrative state. Congress will call a law something that's really only a sentiment. We should have uh, uh, clean air. We should have a nice environment. And then they say over to the legislative executive branch, you guys fill in the details. Well, the devil is in the details. The law is in the details. So, you know, Madison worried long ago that Congress would draw all powers into itself, into what he called the legislative vortex. He got it exactly wrong in this particular. Congress has been throwing off powers for, as you just said, about 80 years, all too eager to fob off on the executive branch and on the judiciary the making of difficult decisions. And uh, the best thing that could happen uh, in my judgment is for uh, Congress to reassert itself. Mike Lee has a project, the Article One project, that is attempting to do exactly that. When I spoke with him uh, last year, there, you know, he noted uh, uh, honestly that uh, one of the big key missing elements of that Article One project are war powers. Oh, and this indeed. is and this is perhaps the most relevant to uh, your most recent column, talking about Donald Trump. Yes, because uh, the institutional checks and balances that Madison put in place work if Congress wants them to work, but there are very little such institutional checks and balances on the president. Uh, the Congress shall raise what armed forces it feels suitable, but once they're raised, the president, it turns out, with ample precedent by now, can do pretty much what he wishes. And this, this institutional fact uh, is a problem that is exacerbated by the nature of our modern challenges, uh, non-state actors, terrorism, that, that blur all the di distinctions between peace and war, uh, meaning that Mr. Trump, as any modern president, uh, Mr. Trump operates with vast discretion. Uh, the question is, is Mr. Trump's discretion more alarming than a normal president's discretion? And I would argue it is because, A, he's impulsive and, B, he's uninformed. Jonathan Chait uh, wrote recently that uh, President Trump is lacking of any sort of ideology at all. Traditional politicians have tried to sort of thread the needle of being populist but at the same time maintaining some semblance of an ideology. Uh, in this case, it seems that uh, with a large swath of the American electorate, 
that lack of consistency, that lack of some sort of backbone of an ideology has been of great benefit to this president. Well, it has. Uh, I'm not sure whether the people like the fact that he has no intellectual or ideological or philosophic ballast or whether they're indifferent to that because they're really preoccupied with his persona. That what they liked about him was he tells it like it is and there's really no antecedent to the pronoun it. He just They just like the way he talks and the way he says rude things and the way he kicks over the traces of presidential norms. The fact that he doesn't do it in the name of anything, conservatism, liberalism, libertarianism, just doesn't matter to people. They just it's the, it's the spectacle itself that they enjoy. Is that just a problem of the modern technological age? I don't know. It's a problem of democracy, probably uh, in any age from Pericles Athens to uh, 21st century America. Uh, the problem is to – when you have representative government, the problem is to get people to consent to representation by worthy people. It's, it's a, an ongoing drama. It's inherent in democracy and sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it spectacularly wrong. Gene Healy makes an argument here of that you know, we see failures in government all the time. But that doesn't stop people. In fact, in many cases, it may encourage people to ask more of the government rather than to seek some solution in civil society or themselves or uh, some sort of effort elsewhere. Yes, and Gene Healy, who you quote now, is uh, the author of one of the premier books of, on American government in the 21st century, The Cult of the Presidency. There's something about the presidency, as Mr. Healy notes, that causes people to invest it with magical powers, to uh, assume that he can create jobs, manage the economy, bring peace to the world, losing sight of the fact that the president is the chief executive of one of our three branches of one of our many governments, the federal government, losing sight of the fact that the Constitution is very sparing in talking about the powers of the presidency and his duties. His duty is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, not to write our laws, not to be our moral instructor, not to be the nation's pastor, to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. There's nothing this country needs more than a dose of presidential modesty. What should Congress do between now and 2020? What Congress should do is go about its business. Here's a novel thought. Why doesn't Congress just once pass 12 appropriations bills on time instead of having the government lurch from one fiscal deadline to another, from one continuing resolution to another, always voting on enormous uh, omnibus appropriations bills that are presented to the Congress on a take-it-or-leave-it basis and you better take it because if you don't take it, we're going to have a government shutdown and chaos. Uh, just start with the basics. We're not asking a lot of people. 12 appropriations bills on time. Are you hopeful that the constraints that uh, Madison and others built into the Constitution will be enough to constrain uh, a president who is as, uh, to put it uh, charitably, as whimsical as this one is? Uh, the jury's still out. Uh, a president today is armed with means of communication, of course, far beyond anything Madison 
could have understood when we were a newspaper-reading country, prodigious newspaper-reading country, even in Madison's day. But newspapers are different than uh, broadcasting, television, uh, the Internet, social media, all the rest. The jury's still out as to how this affects the, the impulsiveness of the public. The, the framers of our country thought that the problem in government was passion, that is not arousing it, but tamping it down. Uh, presidents from Woodrow Wilson on have seen it as their job to arouse passion, to stir the country up, to mobilize it on the march, all the rest. Uh, obviously, the modern instruments of communication facilitate this Wilsonian, unmedisonian approach to government. And, uh, it complicates the, the problem of limited government. Yeah, Wilson posed himself as someone who is above or beyond ideology. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, whenever someone says they're beyond ideology, it means they don't want to tell you what their ideology is. And they don't like yours. Exactly. Everyone <laughs> in uh, – I, I have an ideology. You have a – I mean, I have a philosophy. You have an ideology. Ideology is a term of disparagement. George Will is a syndicated columnist. He spoke at the Cato Institute's 40th anniversary celebration. Subscribe to and rate to the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. Send comments and questions to cbrown at cato.org and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.